it puts me in a position to be able to tell those stories and say, hey, this is really important because it applies to all possible threat categories. And therefore, this is a huge ROI for as far as risk reduction and being able to frame that into that context versus saying, hey, we triaged all these findings and you know we created four tickets. Right, right. Nothing wrong with creating tickets, but it's better to tell a story. Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Future of Application Security. Today, I have Arthur Loris. Arthur is currently a Senior Manager of Product Security at Ping Identity. I'm so excited to have a conversation with you, Arthur, about a lot of topics that I'm very passionate about. Arthur, welcome to the show. Thanks, Arthur. Thanks for having me. Arthur, why don't you help our audience just understand your background a little bit more? Tell them about what you do at Ping and even likely about how you came about to this position, this role at Ping Identity. Sure. So at Ping, I lead one of the AppSec teams. We call them product security, and I, I could talk about that a little bit more later, but that's what I do. I have a team of engineers that are very, very smart and very passionate about security who, who go and do fun security things. Before I was a manager of the team, I was an engineer on the team. And before that, I was a developer for a number of years. I also worked in infrastructure security, so more like the SOC analyst type response type of role. But really, my degree originally is in math. And when I graduated with a math degree, my options were to be a high school teacher, to be a grad student, to be a barista, or to be a developer. And the developer thing kind of fell into place. And I became really, really, really interested in, in computers and how computers work. And more importantly, how computers were an implementation of math. And so that kind of took me down that road. Several years later, I, I met some super interesting people who were security people. And I really like the frame of mind of how can I poke at a problem in a way that's a little bit creative and unconventional and see if I can get some interesting results. And that's kind of what got me onto this path. That's awesome. Were you always somehow directly or indirectly related to AppSec or did that switch happen at some point? That switch happened. I was working at the infrastructure layer and I met some people that are very, very, very smart and very good at, at AppSec and at writing exploits. And I thought that was super cool. And it was kind of a different perspective on the same principles. And they were nice enough to, to be generous with their time and help me learn things. I obviously put in the work, but they helped guide me through a lot of the process of, of learning the fundamentals. And that's how I got into AppSec. Fantastic. So I, I see a, a strong combination of both infrastructure and application security, which brings me to the next question of, your title is product security. You're, you're calling your team as product security. What, what does it actually mean? Is it different from AppSec? Well, at Ping, from a technical perspective, it is AppSec. However, Ping is a business and every other software company out there are businesses. And one of our leaders acknowledged that you know we sell product. And if we're going to be relevant within the context of the business, we need to help with the products themselves rather than just be perceived as the application layer. So that's where the name comes from. More recently, some of the technical lines are a little bit malleable. So we're doing a lot more things at the sort of Docker Kubernetes layer. 
but the main focus is application security. That makes sense. Yeah. And typically just to share some data, I ask this question with every single guest who has a product security background. And that's typically the response, which is like, if it's, it's not just core AppSec, which traditionally used to be, you know, looking at code and, you know, the traditional AppSec pen testing stuff, but also around where's the application actually running, especially in terms of infrastructure as code and containers and, and so on and so forth. So it aligns very well with what I've heard from other folks as well. Fantastic. So Arthur, tell me a little bit about what are some of the challenges that you're seeing in a, in a tech company like Ping or, you know, maybe not very specific to Ping, but even if you generalize it across the industry, when you're working with strong engineering teams who are building product at a rapid pace, and that's the business edge that you have, what are the some of the key challenges as a product security leader? I think the biggest challenge is to build good partnerships with those engineering teams and to to put yourself in a position where you're delivering value to them by making security as painless as possible. Developers build stuff by definition. So we, as much as possible, want to put ourselves in a position of, hey, how can we help you build things faster that are also security conscious? So instead of being more in a like auditor kind of mode or an expert that shows up when everything is on fire kind of mode, it's really about the partnership. I think the biggest challenge is building that. Once you build it, obviously you're you get put in a in a good position where you can be proactive. That's awesome. So in the context of that enabling developers to go faster, enabling dev teams in general, typically security tends to, you know, at the end of the day, we are asking them to do things that they likely did not expect or did not know about. I'm not saying that's a that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just a reality. So if you think about product security and helping enable dev teams, are there any things that that you've done that you've implemented to enable dev teams go faster? Yes, but I'd like to asterisk what you just said. We are the sometimes the messengers for these tasks, but often the tasks are not necessarily generated by us. They're more generated by the greater threat landscape and the compliance requirements that are put upon the business. We are sort of the messengers of those things. So at a sort of partnership level, it's very important for us to try and make that message as to try to reduce the noise of that message as much as possible and do as much of the pre-work as possible before it gets to the engineer's perception. And at that point, you know, the value that we add is to make it easier to do security things rather than to be constantly bringing new tasks. I love your way of explaining it, which is the security teams are a messenger and the tasks are created by the threat landscape or the compliance landscape. So just to dig a little bit deeper into that, compliance landscape and the tax that is generated out of it, that's pretty binary and it's pretty obvious. You, there is a very specific interpretation of the compliance standards and it's not very debatable, right? It's either you follow the compliance or you don't. But the threat landscape, on the other hand, that could be very debatable in the sense that developers would say, well, yeah, sure, this is a theoretical thing and it's not really applicable to us. And security teams might say, no, 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 it is, right? So how do you avoid that discussion? Obviously, it's not scalable to have that discussion every single time. And it's very unhealthy if the dev team says, well, show me how you can exploit it and then I'll believe it, right? And I've seen some of those people and it doesn't really work. Have you run into similar situations or have you had to address them? Oh yeah, for sure. And and I think those situations are actually really healthy. An unhealthy program, in my opinion, is one where those conversations don't happen. Obviously, you have the scalability problem that you mentioned, but if you don't have those conversations, it means that nothing's getting done and that you're just creating a bunch of tickets on a board somewhere and that nobody's looking at them and that's not good for anyone. 
So I think those conversations are very healthy. Anytime that you can remove some of that variability that you're talking about of the threat landscape, like if we talk about vulnerabilities in third-party libraries, anytime you can reduce that noise and make it more streamlined as far as how things are fixed, that's a huge, huge win. So for example, with some of our products, what we do is we've tiered our dependencies into three tiers, into things that are very easy to upgrade, things that are a little bit more complicated, and then things that we have really hard dependencies on. And so all the things that are easy to upgrade just get upgraded. Nobody has a conversation about it. The CVEs will phase themselves out, and we know that those libraries are okay. And then as we work our way up the stack, we have more of those conversations that we described earlier. So that we kind of deal with that the scale issue that way. Another example of something like this is anything that has to do with auto fixes with SEMGREP, which by the way, I'm a huge fan of SEMGREP. I think that tool is groundbreaking. So anytime that we can sort of automate fixes or prevent the reintroduction of a known anti-pattern into the code, that's also a massive win. Building guardrails to prevent it from being introduced in the first place, right? Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. So does that shift the type of work that the security team does? Because now, if, as, if I think about how would I personally implement the things that you mentioned, which, which would be tiering of these dependencies with different tiers, somebody has to do that work, right? There's no automated system for that. So does the security team now focus into just understanding that landscape and identifying the business risk of different things so as to avoid this back and forth or making that decision-making easier? Or who does it? Well, for that particular example, it's a partnership, right? If you have a good trust relationship with your engineering teams and you can say, hey, we can stop worrying about these things if we tier them this way and you don't have to hear from me about these things for X amount of time in this sort of third tier, let's say, and you can just go and auto fix, then it's a win for them too. If you have a good trust relationship, it's pretty easy. If not, you have to build that first. Right, right. That makes sense. And a lot of what you're talking about is building or making decisions based on risk, right? Like what is the true risk? Let's not just make decisions just because the tool is telling us to do something, but how do you determine the risk? And you've done some work on risk management using the the FAIR model and leveraging it in AppSec. Tell me a little bit about it. What prompted you to look into FAIR in the first place? What prompted me to look into it, I used to work for a gentleman named Rob Reck, and he was very geared on things that were measurable. And it was always very a very complicated conversation when it came to measuring AppSec efforts. And so as a result of that, I started to just become curious about what there was out there that would make that more measurable. Is there anything that I'm missing? And as it turns out, there's a book called How to Measure Anything in a Cybersecurity Risk that's pretty much the Bible for all things quantitative method related. And you know, I picked up the book, I read it, and that's kind of where that whole thing started. Both of those people that you mentioned are awesome. Rob Reich is amazing. And also Richard Sarson, who wrote that book, he's been a phenomenal thought leader in the space of measurement. So did you find that anything changed in your perspective of AppSec once you applied the FAIR methodology or the FAIR view of looking at it? By the way, we should probably also explain what FAIR is to our audience, just in case people are not familiar with them. Yeah, that's a good point. So FAIR stands for Factor Analysis and Information Risk. It's a framework for breaking down risk into items that are easy to estimate as far as likelihood of occurrence and impact in dollars. But essentially, the way that these quantitative methods work is to express risk in a more mathematically sophisticated way than a risk matrix of a bunch of highs, mediums, and lows that are determined by you know, ticking boxes in a matrix. 
So at a high level, that's what we're trying to achieve. The way that I implemented it was really to define strategy for my program and to figure out what, and if we talk about what strategy is, it's finding points of high leverage and then being able to scope tactical efforts to go and address those. So the FAIR, what I call FAIR stride, which is threat modeling with FAIR as an output, is the tool to define what those sort of high leverage points are. What it allows us to do is, you know, if you think of a normal threat model for an application where you have, you know, let's say stride, right? And you have threats for each one of the categories. In the traditional sense, that feeds into a CVSS score calculator, which spits out high, medium, and low, depending on all the factors that the CVSS uses for, for their computation. The problem with that is that it's very difficult to combine highs together. It's very difficult to combine a medium and a high. It's very difficult to combine a thousand lows. Like, is it worth fixing a thousand lows or two mediums? Mathematically, it's very challenging. So instead, if your output is reflective of the processes required to generate findings, triage those findings, remediate them, and then drive any kind of post-remediation efforts, if we were speaking in those terms and we're able to break down each one of our threats as far as how much money they're costing because of those things, then we're in a position where we can compare a process improvement to a technical control. So a simple example of that is you can answer a question like, does it make more sense, let's say, to remove a bug class with SEMGREP and say, okay, we're completely done with that threat and just remove it from your registry. And how does that compare to a process improvement like how do I disclose vulnerabilities to my customers? Which one is more valuable? And with a quantitative method, you can answer that. So that that's kind of what it is in a nutshell. That is amazing. So that gives you, I'm guessing, a lot more conviction uh, of getting behind a particular thing and being able to confidently say, we really have to do these things because these are the highest risk issues for us or highest risk priorities for us. When you have that type of a conversation with quantitative data with your stakeholders, do you feel like you get a different response as compared to you would take you know similar initiatives without that quantitative data? It makes it a lot more effective for me to be able to say, hey, we've improved this process by this much. You know, we've improved like the response time for our support team by X amount of time per ticket when you know it adds up to this many hours per quarter and we've saved the company this much money by improving those response times. It puts me in a position to be able to tell those stories and say, hey, this is really important because it applies to all possible threat categories. And therefore, this is a, a huge ROI for as far as risk reduction and being able to frame that into that context versus saying, hey, we triaged all these findings and you know we created four tickets. Right, right. Nothing wrong with creating tickets, but it's it <laughs> better to, to tell a story. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of times the security teams tend to get stuck in in that process, which is, I'm going to scan for things, I'm going to create tickets, and then it's not up to me. So that is not a very productive way to to manage risk, right? Because at the end of the day, reporting is is one thing, but you really have to drive remediation. You have to accelerate the remediation. I'm curious if there are any KPIs or metrics that you use to measure the health of what you're doing, whether it's identification of the risk or remediation of risk, any, any metrics you use? In my opinion, the product security or AppSec programs have really two functions. One of them is to enable compliance and one of them is to reduce risk. If you're enabling compliance and you're spending time on that, that's incredibly valuable. It's not the sort of coolest technical work, but it's incredibly valuable because it actually allows your company to bring in dollars. 
So saying, okay, you know, we've achieved this compliance framework and we provided evidence for that. That's plenty of metrics, in my opinion, for business enablement. And then when we talk about risk reduction, I do something similar as far as saying, hey, you know, this is the measurable impact that this effort has had. And this other, I don't believe in measuring the output from tools that like have findings for applications as a measure for success. It's very important because it's a source of finding, but I don't believe that that is a measure, a sole measure of success for a program. So I always try to look at it bigger picture and say, hey, you know, this effort has reduced the amount of money that it costs to do this. This effort has reduced the likelihood that we're going to have to respond to that event by this much, et cetera. Yeah, that makes sense. Sort of the other half of you know, identifying risk is the actual remediation of risk. And a lot of times we see that customers try to measure that effort by a simple metric like an MPTR, right? And if you're starting to measure how quickly are we mitigating the risk once it's identified, that helps build the muscle of, you know, responding to things as they come up because the reality is our job is to identify risk and we'll continue to identify it. So the volume of risk doesn't really matter, but how quickly are we addressing them? That is an important way to show how healthy the organization is in terms of responding to it. In a lot of cases, it's not possible. Maybe it is in some cases, it's not the right way of measuring things. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that remediation aspect of risk. Yeah, for sure. So let's think about the full life cycle of a finding, let's say. Finding can come from any number of places, right? Any kind of tool, static analysis, software composition, et cetera, et cetera. It can come from a bug bounty program. It could come from a pen tester. It could come from an engineer on my team. It could come from a developer. It could come from somebody in support that sees something interesting and, and wants to talk about it. So you have all these places where findings are generated and then they get funneled into a triaging mechanism. And the triaging mechanism is usually somebody on the security side taking the, the report seeing how it applies to the context that, in my case, the application runs, and then figuring out, okay, do we proceed or do we not proceed? And if we do proceed, there are other costs associated with that, one of them being remediation. And the cost of remediation is associated to the time it takes to fix something. After the remediation has been implemented, so developer goes, fixes the bug, we validate, QA does their thing uh, and make sure the application is still standing, there's release processes that happen. There are potentially documentation that needs to go out to our customers. There are potentially uh, notifications that are uh, more explicit depending on, on the risk of the associated with the finding. But remediation is one of the components in that whole chain. Mm. It is an important one, but it's possible to compare it to other components in that chain. Yeah. So yes, time to remediate, very important. But when we think about risk reduction at scale and the bigger picture, it's one of the components that we can influence. We don't have full control over it because it is you know, up to product management and up to engineering to actually go and, and, and handle that. So we can influence it, but there are other things that we can control more fully that we, we can tell a story around. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's an important one to recognize because uh, as a lot of times, either security, especially I see that pattern in younger security engineers where they get frustrated with somebody doesn't doesn't pick up the security bug and, and fixes it right away. You know, the reality is even developers a lot of times don't control their own sprint, right? It, 
there's multiple variables that go into it. So it's not just a simple thing that we reported a bug and now you go fix it. So there's multiple layers of complexity, organizational processes that are involved in it. So in terms of integrating closely with that dev process, was there a, a learning curve for you in terms of understanding what the dev process actually is? Like, how do you get things prioritized in the, the dev process? Like, who's the right person? What's the right mechanism? Right channels of communication? How did you discover that? You discover it by asking a lot of questions and staying humble. You know, in security, we have a tendency to be labeled as experts, and some of us are. But it's always important to remember that people that are outside of security are also incredibly smart and incredibly competent. And so in my experience, whenever a problem is occurring or a threat has been identified or something that needs remediation needs to be addressed, the first thing is to go have a conversation with the person who is in charge of that area and understand how that fits into their universe. Understand, you know, is this actually a huge problem or is it not a huge problem, right? We see this a lot, like uh, CVSS scores being modified and changed depending on the environment, depending on, on things like that. That's, we want to make sure that if there's something that we think is is really critical, that we look at it from the perspective of the person that's going to be consuming that. And when we look at it from their perspective, we will find, oh, actually they need to negotiate priorities with this party or that party. Oh, there's 50 other things that are completely broken that make this thing that we bring up maybe irrelevant, right? Like if you bolt on security onto a product that doesn't make any money, you're barking up the wrong tree, right? First you have to make money and then you can start to reduce risk. So yeah, it's really about seeing things from the the other party's perspective and showing up as a as an advocate for the team winning versus us, us versus them, like our priorities versus their priorities. I love that point. I think it's an important point that that we all should keep in mind. The first challenge every time I champion that point of view, the first challenge I get back is, well, how do I scale that, right? And it's a valid question, but I think it's also addressable. I'm curious at the scale of being identity did you run into scale issues? Because you know a lot of the things you talked about requires conversations, personalities, skills that you can't learn from a book. Uh, look, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend like, like I know what it is to scale something at a Microsoft or a Google or an Amazon scale because I'm not in that world. But in the world that I'm familiar with, the scalability comes from leadership buy-in. So yes, you have to have conversations with people. And over time, those conversations will become easier and easier if everybody's on the same page and everybody's sort of rowing in the same direction and on the same team. But getting buy-in from leadership and the higher up it makes sense for the leadership to be bought in, the more effective it's going to be and the less resistance you're going to run into. You know, that's a good point. That sparked another thought, just a random thought. So when you say leadership, do you mean security leadership or outside of that? No, outside. Outside. Okay. So then as a part of Let's say somebody's looking for a job in your role, similar capacity as somebody who leads product security. If the success of your function depends on leadership buy-in, should you be interviewing that person before you accept that job to validate whether you have buy-in from that person or not before you take up that job offer? Absolutely. I would even say that not just engineering, but also product management to understand if security makes sense from a business perspective. Like if your product is more secure, will that enable you to gain more trust from your customers and sell more stuff? Yeah. I want to know that too. As a matter of fact, when we interview people for engineer roles on my team, or we always bring in 
as one of the stages, we always bring in somebody from the engineering team that they will eventually be embedded in. And we all we create that that buy-in from from the get-go. That's amazing. That's a very collaborative way of looking at it because you're setting them up for collaboration on day one, before day one actually starts, right? You're involving engineering and other people into the interview process. That's amazing. So as you think about how the tech landscape is evolving, how the threat landscape, compliance landscape is changing, how do you see the, the future of product security? Is, is anything changing in a significant way, in your opinion, or what are you seeing there? What I would like to see is a stronger emphasis on strategy. Obviously, we've been talking about risk and quantitative methods and so forth, but I would like to see a strong emphasis on strategy, which is really finding those points of high leverage efforts across a department and then leaning into those and building goals and tactical plans to, to achieve those. I find that sometimes when I listen to security leaders sort of across the board, a lot of the focus is on don't get breached, which is obviously important, but it's more of wishful thinking than something that actually implements strategy. Like, what does it mean for you not to get breached? What are the important things that need to not be compromised and sort of work your way back from what that actually looks like on the ground and finding those those levers that are that'll give you a lot of uh, return as far as risk reduction. So I hope that in the future that becomes more widespread across the across the industry. That's awesome. Do you have any recommendations if somebody was to look into you know learning more about strategy for for security or product security specifically are there any resources that they can look into? Well, you should absolutely look into the how to measure anything in cybersecurity risk. And I think reading business books that are not even related to security will give you a really good perspective. Things like a challenger sale, things like a good strategy, bad strategy will really sort of help you understand the perspective of other people and how that perspective might be beneficial to you. You know, I kind of just a, as a as a tongue-in-cheek side note, like the best social engineers in the world are salespeople, not social engineers, in my opinion. Right. So I can go learn how somebody sells, at least at a high level, I'll get, you know, I'll get a lot of value out of that. Hey, at the end of the day, a lot of what we do in security is selling, right? Like you're convincing people to do things without having direct authority over them. That's selling at the end of the day. That's phenomenal. Well, Arthur, this has been such a phenomenal conversation. Thank you so much for sharing all your insights. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Harshal. Really, really appreciate the invite. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.